This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... The Ethiopian government has been responsible for a two-year-long internet blackout and must take urgent steps to restore full internet access in Tigray and all parts of the country. Felicia Antonio, a manager at the Internet Rights Group Access Now on Ethiopia, hosting a UN forum on internet governance. Details coming up also. The top UN human rights official urges Sudan to respect human rights in its transition to democracy. Ugandan President Yaware Museveni says tourists shouldn't worry about the country's Ebola outbreak. And the Global Climate Conference heads into its final stretch. We'll have these stories and more ahead on African News Tonight. The COP27 Global Climate Summit is still working its way through its agenda in Egypt, and VOA's Heather Murdoch is back to update us. Hello, Heather. Welcome back to African News Tonight. Thank you. Has the draft of any agreement or statement from COP27 been released? There is a draft of sorts, about 20 pages, they're calling a non-paper, that was released today. Um, and we believe that will that a lot of that language will be in the final draft. So uh, the activist group Global Campaign to Demand Climate Justice has issued a statement today. What are the key points of that? Well, they issued a statement this afternoon, and some of it was reacting to the the draft of what we think might be the final decision. Um, what was what the decision was not was a clear, comprehensive pathway towards a loss and damage fund for uh, developing nations. And now this group came out to talk about what it is for indigenous communities and uh, other frontline communities in Africa and small island nations, and it was particularly indigenous leaders from the Amazon speaking, and they're deeply disappointed by this. They say that if you go to the front lines of uh, climate change disasters, you almost never find uh, a real concern in international help, and they thought that perhaps this was the time, because it was finally on the agenda, that we would see the international community come together and say enough, and it was time to move and time to protect the most vulnerable people in the world. But this clearly did not happen so far this week. There's still another day to go, but the uh, the leaders of this group were outraged, saying they thought in some ways that this uh, conference was, you know, it was more of a disappointment and we're worse off now than we were before. And uh, any other key developments today you, you care to talk about? Sure. Uh, the UN Secretary General returned to Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt today and issued a statement upon his arrival this evening that urged the leaders of the delegations of the nearly 200 nations here to take these last final days to come together, and he urged them to action. He said, the time for negotiating, the time for people's opinions is over. It's clear we all know what needs to happen, but it, and it's time for strong commitments to action immediately. 
From Shamar Sheikh, Egypt, VOA's Heather Murdoch, thank you for your input. Thank you. Sudan's Forces of Freedom and Change Coalition say it's reached a framework agreement with the military to end the country's political deadlock since an October 2021 coup. A second stage of talks will discuss four topics, which are transitional justice, dismantling the Bashir regime, security sector reform, and the Juba Peace Agreement. Joseph Siegel, director of research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, assessed this development with VOA senior analyst Mohamed El-Shinawi. I think it's a sign of progress. It shows that both sides, military and civilians, are taking the proposed constitutional framework drafted by the Sudan Bar Association seriously. You know, these developments are also recognition by the military that they lack the legitimacy to rule on their own and that they need a a credible civilian government in order to gain the popular international support that's needed to help stabilize Sudan and attract the badly needed international investment. The issues that will be talked uh, about in the in the forthcoming discussions, transitional justice, uh, dismantling the Bashir regime, security sector reform, these are all sensitive issues that will be challenging to unpack. I mean, they're getting at the responsibility and accountability uh, on the part of the military for past human rights violations, especially in terms of violence against protesters. And they're addressing the fundamental questions about what will be the respective authorities between civilian and military leaders in a transitional government and a subsequent uh, democratic government. Chairman of the Transitional Sovereign Council in Sudan, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, admitted the presence of understandings with the Opposition Freedom and Change Forces Coalition for the benefit of Sudan. But he said the army does not want unilateral solutions, but a civil rule guarded by the armed forces. What do you make of that? His statement is ambiguous, and it gets at some of the fundamental questions that remain unresolved over what will be the role of the military in a future civilian-led government. On the, on the one hand, free, the Forces for Freedom and Change, the civilian-led coalition, has affirmed that it wants the military to disassociate itself from politics. And only then will the, the transitional government be able to engage in the necessary reforms that are needed and leading to a single professional national army. And you know the civilians want to make sure that they have full executive powers so that they can affect the changes that are necessary and they can focus on delivering basic services, addressing the dire economic and social needs in the country. Now, you know, the military uh, throughout the period since the 2019 revolution has tried to hedge its prospects. It has tried to co-opt the transitional process so that there would be a civilian head of government, but in fact, that that civilian government would be subordinate to the military. And so there are very two very different visions for how this would work. And I think that Brahan's statement uh, leaves that question very ambiguous, and that is something that would need to be unpacked uh, in the subsequent uh, negotiations moving forward. That was Joseph Siegel, Director of Research at Africa Center for Strategic Studies, speaking with VOA Senior Analyst Mohamed El-Shanawi.
Pro-democracy protests are continuing today in the tiny southern African kingdom of Eswatini, formerly called Swaziland, and in neighboring South Africa. Eswatini, Africa's last absolute monarchy, has been rocked by demonstrations since June last year when activists reiterated demands for constitutional reforms to allow citizens to elect their own leaders. Marches began in the capital, Mbambini, on Tuesday in protest against the continued detention since July last year of two members of parliament who called for reforms. King Maswati III has ruled Eswatini since 1986, when he took the throne when he was just 18. The king's advised by the queen mother and a council, but ultimately he has the power to decide on government posts, including prime minister. Mswati also appoints most parliamentarians, with some chosen by traditional chiefs close to the king. Pro-democracy protests have flared over the years, with Mswati using security forces to crush dissent. Human rights groups say the 2008 Suppression of Terrorism Act is used as a pretext to ban political organizations and jail activists who are often tortured and sometimes killed. The political climate in Swaziland is bad. Lioness Sibande represents the United Eswatini diaspora, which is calling for the release of all political prisoners in the country. I would love to thank the police, the junior officers in the country in Swaziland, who have chosen to be on the side of the Swazis and uh, defy the orders by the king to shoot the protesters who have always been unarmed. The king's government says its security forces don't shoot unarmed peaceful protesters, but have a right to defend themselves against what they call violent agitators. Sibande says scores of people have been arrested over the past few weeks, imprisoned without trial and ill-treated. The treatment they've been getting is not getting any better. They've been denied going to hospital when they see we all know that the charges that have been created by King Swati against them is all lies. She says the atmosphere in Eswatini remains volatile, and she's afraid of what could happen in the coming days and weeks. The police force, the defense force, there is this other police force that's called the Osu. They still continue shooting at Swazis and killing them. And now Swazis have stood up and decided to defend themselves. Envoys from several southern African countries have been visiting the king and his council for more than a year, attempting to bring stability. In July last year, South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa spoke with reporters after talking with Mswati. And I said, I'm extremely worried about the situation there. And I'd like you to meet my envoy. He's carrying a message from me, which is a message from the region. And the message is straightforward. We want to see peace in Eswatini. And we would like to see a dialogue beginning between the government and the various organizations. And I said to... Sibande says nothing material has come from this intervention and the king and those close to him continue to oppress Swazis. We have been pushed to a corner and being exposed to poverty for the longest time whereby the royal family is enjoying all the benefits of our hard labor. 
they should stop looting the Swaziland. We need job opportunities. You can't get a job in Swaziland if you are not related to the royalty or you have a connection with someone who's close to the royalty. She says with no jobs, no money, no political rights, and most importantly, no hope, an increasing number of Swazis feel they've nothing to lose. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Ethiopia is set to host the UN's annual Internet Governance Forum later this month, despite an ongoing communications blackout in its war-damaged Tigray region. The government-imposed blackout in Tigray has left 6 million people without phone or Internet access for nearly two years. Fred Harter reports from Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. The forum, organizers say, is expected to draw over 2,500 delegates to Addis Ababa, one of the largest international gatherings in Ethiopia's capital in years. Those not able to attend in person will be able to log in virtually to hear sessions dealing with topics such as connecting all people and meaningful access to the internet. The 6 million people living in Tigray will not be tuning in, however. The northern region is subject to one of the world's tightest communication blackouts which has left it without phone and internet since war broke out between the federal military and forces led by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF, in November 2020. A peace deal struck earlier this month commits the federal government to restoring the services, but the blackout is still firmly in place. As a result, the UN's decision to hold the event in Ethiopia has raised eyebrows. On November 15, Senator Jim Risch, who chairs the U.S. Senate's Committee on Foreign Relations, describes the decision as wrong, saying the forum should be housed in a country that, quote, doesn't regularly block its citizens' internet access. This week, Technology Minister Huria Ali defended Ethiopia's role as host. She said that reforms undertaken by her government since it replaced a coalition led by the TPLF in 2018 mean Ethiopia currently enjoys freedom of expression unparalleled in its history. To mention a few, all websites blocked by the previous government were unblocked. Political prisoners were freed and all the exiled politicians were invited back home. The 2020 election was, by any standard, the election where opponents free aired their agendas. Alluding to the blackout, Huria added that the government has been forced to take activities to protect the country during the conflict with Tigray, which has left hundreds of thousands dead and uprooted millions. The blackout in Tigray is not the only shutdown in Ethiopia. Communications have also been turned off in parts of Oromia, Ethiopia's largest region, where an armed group is battling the government. Addis Ababa was left without internet for weeks in 2020, following a wave of violence that was sparked by the killing of a popular Aromo musician. Felicia Antonio, a manager at Internet Rights Group Access Now, said the Internet Forum was an opportunity to highlight the blackout affecting Tigray. The Ethiopian government has been responsible for a two-year-long internet blackout and must take urgent steps to restore full internet access in Tigray and all parts of the country. The African Union and member states have a clear mandate to promote and protect human rights in Africa. And this is the moment for them to um, step up 
and help facilitate an end to this internet blockage. Redwan Hussein, the Ethiopian Prime Minister's National Security Advisor, has said services are being restored to Tigray. But for now, the region remains cut off from the outside world. Fred Harter, for VOA News, Alice Alba, Ethiopia. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. Please note we have moved our programs from voanews.com to voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com. The UN High Commissioner for Human Rights has urged Sudanese authorities to respect human rights as a core of that country's transition to democracy. At the end of his four-day visit, Volker Turk said justice and accountability must be expedited for victims and survivors of rights violations. Michael Atit reports from Khartoum, Sudan. The UN chief said his office has documented serious human rights violations in Sudan in the past few years, and yet no one has ever been held accountable. Speaking at a news conference late Wednesday in Khartoum, Volker Turk also cited more recent excessive use of force against protesters in Khartoum. He said since the military coup in October last year, the use of live ammunition by security forces against democracy protesters killed at least 119 people and injured more than 8,000 others. Turk said his office also has verified 19 cases of sexual and gender-based violence, most of them committed by Sudanese police during the protests. He said there were likely more that go unreported due to social stigma, lack of faith in Sudan's justice system, and fear of reprisals. We have over the years documented violations by all security forces and by many armed actors. Um, And it is really important to follow up on this. And that's why we have established a very close cooperation in order to ensure that the national action plan for the protection of civilians gets implemented. Turk says rights activists and internal displaced people in the Darfur region reported widespread impunity for rights abuses, including by Sudan's rapid support forces. The UN rights chief said his office documented 11 large-scale clashes that left more than 1,000 people dead since January 2021. He called on all sides involved in Sudan's political process to work toward prompt restoration of civilian rule and stressed the need for accountability and justice. In my discussions with the authorities, I consistently highlighted the need for trust-building measures to earn the confidence of the people. I stressed an important point that human rights and the respect for human rights builds trust. Human Rights Watch researcher Mohammed Osman said the UN rights chief's trip to Sudan came at a crucial time as the political transition seems stuck behind closed doors. Osman says such a political process is likely to lack inclusivity and transparency and most importantly about justice and accountability for the victims of his cause of violations that happened in the past. Quite crucial, to be honest, to see the situation being placed under rights-focused scrutiny 
that would not allow the dynamics of, of political expediency and conveniency that surrounded the previous transition and still surrounding the reported negotiations in, in Sudan uh, to prevail. Turk met late Wednesday with the head of Sudan's ruling sovereign council and military leader General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan. Speaking shortly after the meeting, the head of Human Rights Department at the Sudanese Foreign Ministry, Isam Mutwali, said the government was committed to respect for human rights. Mutwali said they were working to expedite the political process to restore Sudan's civilian-led transitional government. He said during the meeting with the UN rights chief, Al-Burhan expressed a readiness to cooperate with the international community. Mutwali says Al-Burhan is keen and committed to all the international and regional treaties that Sudan has ratified. Most importantly, he says, those that respect human rights. Sudan's army chief Al-Burhan led a military coup in October last year that ousted the civilian bloc from a power-sharing transitional government. The coup was widely condemned, cut off Sudan from international financing, and sparked nearly weekly street protests against military rule and calling for democracy. Michael Atid for VOA News, Khartoum, Sudan. World Cup action kicks off Sunday in Qatar. Fans around the world are getting ready for the action, and some business owners are preparing. Ismail Felix owns a restaurant in Accra. He spoke with journalist Isa Jesus about how he's getting ready for World Cup fans coming to watch the games. This is where normally the boys come to watch football. Formerly we used to have one team, but because of the World Cup, we, we are preparing, we have added three televisions. And even we have one down there. And then also I've been able to purchase a new generator for the upcoming World Cup. So we are getting there. I'm a Ghanaian. So first, I will say my team will shine. My players that I think will shine, I'm looking at Lionel Messi and then um, Kylian Mbappé and then um, Neymar. I think it's going to be wonderful. It's going to be more and more wonderful. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, and our engineer, Adrias Regas, thanks for choosing the Voice of America. Maxwell, host of Music Time in Africa. Join me every Saturday and Sunday for an hour of awesome African music. Wake up, dance this music. Like to stay on top of new music trends? Breakout artists? 
New releases? Maybe you just love the classic styles and artists of the past. Or simply the sound and feel of a good beat. Whatever your pleasure, you can get it every week right here on Music Time in Africa. So join me on your local FM station, Saturdays and Sundays at 1500 and 2000 UTC. VOA brings you the best in African music on the African beat. African beat showcases the latest and the greatest of contemporary African music from bobo music to hip life, bonga flavor to sukus, afrobeat to ndombolo and makosa to kwaito. The African beat on VOA has it all. And it's happening right here, Mondays through Fridays at 